are in Philippians chapter 4, and today, Lord willing, we're going to finish the book that we've been in for a while. In Philippians, Paul, his main theme is joy. Now, number one, he's writing from prison. Number two, he's writing to one of the poorest churches in all of Asia. He's writing to this, or in Macedonia. He's writing to this church that really doesn't have much. And so he writes to them, of all churches, about joy, because joy is not based upon our circumstances. It's not based upon our possessions. It's not based upon a, a perfect financial situation. It's not even based upon uh, the roof that we have over our head. It's actually based upon a person. Joy is based upon a person, Jesus. Now, that seems like a Sunday school answer, right? What makes us happy? What makes us happy no matter what's going on? And I can just see my daughter raising her hand and saying, Jesus, you know, because that's what we trained her. That is the answer to everything, Jesus. But what does that look like practically? Well, if you look at chapter 4, which we're in this week and we'll be completing, his last chapter in, in the book of Philippians, really the theme is more than just about joy, but it's also some pastors have called this the chapter about peace. How can we have peace in this life? How can we experience peace? We know the king of peace, but does that encapsulate what our lives actually are made of? Do we have peace-filled lives? And I would say, uh, based upon some of my circumstances yesterday, I, I don't always walk around in peace. I don't always experience peace that passes all understanding. So why is that? Well, in chapter 4, Paul talks, after going through three chapters and, and explaining to them what can give us joy in this life, chapter 1, he says, in order to have joy, you need to have a singular focus for your life. You need to have a proper priority. You need Jesus to be your number one priority. And that is the first ingredient to joy. If Jesus is your priority, if you want to glorify God with your life, that will give you joy. Chapter 2, he talks about joy through being submitted to the will of God. Now, all of these things are about Jesus. Really, they're all about Jesus. We talk about joy, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. But here in this book, he talks about Jesus being the single focus, our minds and our lives being submitted to the will of the Father, just like Jesus. And then in chapter 3, he talks about being surrendered. He talks about being uh, this person that has been losing himself in the life of Christ. What he knew in his past life, he counts it as lost in order to gain what Christ has given him as his full payment for his sin, for his forgiveness. And then in chapter 4, he talks about basically the secure mind. The mind guarded by the Lord is a peace-filled mind. <clears throat> so, here we are in chapter 4, and he started in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, my beloved and my longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord. And then in verse 2 he says, I implore, and he starts talking about these individuals in the church that were disrupting the peace and the unity in the church. They were causing division because of a personal beef they had with one another, because of an argument they had going on. So he says, put it away. He says, verse 3, I urge you also, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. These two ladies that aren't getting along, they labored with me in the gospel. Help them and the rest of my fellow workers 
in the, whose names are written in the book of life. Help them restore their relationship. Help them restore unity. Help them to get along. And then he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. And so that is going to be the theme of this chapter. Many times we rejoice because of circumstances, things that go on. You know, if, if you win the big game, you're rejoicing, you're excited because this thing has happened that you've longed for, right? But here's the deal, we don't always win the big game. So then, do we have joy or are we robbed of our joy because of circumstances? So what he's saying here is rejoice in the circumstances? No. In verse 4, he says rejoice in the Lord. If we can rejoice in the Lord, what you'll find is that He is the one thing, that relationship that we have with Him is the one thing that we experience in this life, that we have in this life, that can't be taken from us. Your car, your job, your kids, your family members, this building, like uh, your breath and your lungs can be taken from you. Everything that you can think of that you're happy because you have, it's good to be thankful to the Lord for them. But the reality is they can all be taken. All of them. So then what? Read the book of Job. Look at Job's life. And he, had, he was one of the richest guys you read about in the Old Testament. Everything was taken from him. Did he deny his relationship with the Lord? No. Because he was anchored by the love of his God that he knew was ever-present in his life. And he said to his wife, Though God would even slay me, yet I will still trust him. He trusted him. He trusted him because he knew him to be faithful in the past. He knew that God doesn't change, and that in the future, God won't change either. He will remain faithful. This week I was reminded, and I can't remember where the verse was, but even when I am faithless, God is still faithful. And I love that because I become faithless in the easiest of circumstances. Yesterday, I had problems with Kelly's car. I was changing the oil, and apparently, you can drop the oil out of your car and leave the plug out for too long. I didn't know this. I grew up in a shop changing oil with my dad. I didn't know this was a thing. But if you drain all the oil out, and then you let it sit there for too long, apparently, it'll lose its prime. The pump has to be primed in order to pick up the oil from the oil pan. So I dumped all the oil back in it. I put the filter on before that. And then I put the, 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 um, the drain plug in there. And because of that, I poured the oil in and it should work, right? Well, there was air in that tube that suctions up. And because there was air in it, it wouldn't draw the oil up through the tube that oils the whole engine. So the oil light chain stayed on. So long story short, I called my dad. As I'm getting older, I'm realizing, call dad earlier. Don't just sit around. Just call him right away and ask for help. It's okay. And then we fixed the car. And Lucy was there with me, and we thanked the Lord. But here's the thing. I was throwing an absolute fit when this thing wasn't fixed in my timing. And I had to ask for help, and it didn't work out. Throwing an absolute fit. Lord, why? And then I didn't realize what it looked like until about 15 minutes later. We got the thing fixed. We're working on the yard. Lucy and I are playing out back. We're raking leaves. We're burning stuff. You know, stuff that guys like to do. And Lucy is just getting a kick out of it. We're enjoying our time. And then I start mowing the grass, and she's got her little cup of water. It's got the little lid on it with the little, you know, the drink cup. And it's sitting on her picnic table. And it was windy yesterday. And the wind blows hard. And it blows her cup onto the ground. Well, she's my daughter for sure. 
Because when it hits the ground, she goes, ah, my cup. And I look over there, I'm like, oh gosh. So I just keep mowing. She sets it back on the same table. It blows off again. And guess what she did the second time? Ah, my cup. Well, at this point, I'm done. She's being ridiculous. How could she be this way? So I shut off the mower, and I walk over there. I go, what in the world is going on? And she said, my cup. And I said, it's not that big of a deal. And at that time, the Lord said to me, neither was your thing. I had it. What were you freaking out about? Are you really any different than your daughter? And the answer is no. I'm just a kid that freaks out when little things go wrong. In my perspective, it's a huge thing. We could lose our car. I think I just blew up the motor if I run it for too long. But God, in his mercy, he showed me, hey, we've got two cars. It's, it's going to be okay. And I've get, provided you a motorcycle. Even if the thing is blown up and you can't afford a car, guess what? Your, your wife can drive the Jeep. She'll love it. And you can drive your motorcycle. You'll love that. Wow, that's really hard circumstances, right? Man, I've got a rough life. But the Lord, he is so patient with us. And so Paul writes to them concerning joy and circumstances. And this week, imagine this. I'm supposed to be teaching about contentment after throwing my fit yesterday. So the Lord even knows what I need to be learning. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Even when your car will not pump oil through the engine. Even when your cup blows over. He says, verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. Because the Lord is at hand. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know when we're going to breathe our last. We don't know any of these things. He says, the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. I'm just going to read through what we studied last week. Be anxious about nothing, but pray about everything. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to the Lord. Let your requests be made known to God. And when you do this, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds to Christ Jesus. God wouldn't let me go another week without practicing this in real life. And when the car wouldn't oil itself and we were having this little thing, I realized I needed to go get some parts. And my wife needed the other car so I couldn't drive to the parts store. And Lucy and I just sat down in the garage and I said, Lucy, we need to pray. And we, sa- and we started with this lesson that I did not learn last week. And we started with Thanksgiving. Lord, thank you. That's a beautiful Saturday. That this didn't happen when we were trying to pump water out of our basement. Thank you, Lord, that, that we have two cars. Thank you, Lord, that, that we're healthy and that, that we have people that can give us wisdom and encourage us and, and even bring parts to our house. Lord, thank you that you've provided money so we can buy the parts we need. And all the things. And then we said, Lord, if it be your will, will you please help us fix the car? And you know what? By the end of it, we had a fixed car. So he says, finally, brethren, verse 8, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything that's praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Don't meditate on the negative things that are going on in life. Don't meditate on the things that have gone wrong. Meditate on the things that are right, good, honest, truthful, with virtue and character and, and all the things that we can praise God about. Do you know what it means to meditate on something? You picture probably somebody like a guru sitting in a room with nothing going on, his legs crossed, sitting in the lotus position, contemplating his navel and going, oh. But actually, it's an idea that we can probably relate to, living close to lots of fields full of cattle. To meditate 
on the Word of God, to meditate on things that are good and lovely and of good report, means to chew on them. It's like what a cow does. See a cow out in the field, they're always chewing. And they eat grass, they pick it up, and they gnaw it off, and then they chew on it. And they chew on it, and they chew on it, and then they swallow it. And what many people don't know is that they have four stomachs. And so after they chew it and they swallow it, their stomach absorbs the nutrients. This can be gross. They kind of erp it up again, and they start chewing on it again. And they chew on it, and then they swallow it again. And they do this four times, so by the time it comes out the end, the, the business end, you've got something that has all the nutrients removed from it. It's just refuse. But the beauty of it is God's Word is so good and so full of nutrients that if we absorb it and we chew on it and we contemplate it and we think about it, we try to live it out until every nutrient is gone. That's why we can read this thing every year for our entire lives and never obtain literally everything it has to offer. But we can try to absorb as much as we can. So when we meditate on it, what we're doing is we're trying to get every little piece of nutrients that we need for this life out of it, and God gives us the ability by His Spirit to absorb it and to make it a part of us like we do when we eat a meal. So He says, meditate on these things. Finally, excuse me, verse 9, He says, the things that you learned, things that you heard me teach, and the things that you received. You can learn things without receiving them. We need to let the Word of God, we need to receive it, whether we like it or not, and to hear it. The things that you received and heard and saw in me, look at my life, he says. These things do, and the God of peace will be with you. So he says, pray about everything. He says, think about things that are good. And then he says this third thing in verse 9, the things that you've seen me do and received from me and been taught by me, do them. Don't just think about them. Don't just stay on your ivory tower and think about good things, but then try to live them out. You know, and many times what you're going to do is you're going to try and live them out, and you're going to fail at it. Keep trying. Keep trying to do them, because then you'll realize how much more you needed the Lord than you realized at first. You'll say, Lord, I know I'm supposed to do this. Help me to do it. And then he gets involved. So remember that the theme is is found in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. So down in verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul has had this man by the name of Epaphroditus come from the Philippian church as a representative, and he's brought financial means, and he's also brought himself. He's brought words of encouragement for Paul, who is in prison. Paul's in prison. They've given to him before and provided financially so he can continue to minister to all these other churches. They didn't give out of their abundance. They gave sacrificially. Remember I said this was a very poor church. They actually provided for Paul when he went and served in Corinth, which was one of the most affluent societies. They had much money, and yet Paul wouldn't take payment from them because it would stumble them. He said, I would rather work by my own hands. And in the meantime, God also used this poor church to provide financially for him so that while he was there, he was taken care of and he wouldn't stumble this church. They supported his ministry financially, and in practical ways, they sent Epaphroditus to encourage him. Sometimes what we feel compelled to do is to give to people in a practical way, something that they don't have, that we have, that they need, which is good. But sometimes we just need someone to come and be with us to remind us that God is with us. 
And so Epaphroditus came. He says, verse 10, that Paul, because of what they did for him, he was full of joy in the Lord. He was full of joy in the Lord. He saw this trip of mercy, this encouragement while he was in prison as the Lord reminding him of his faithfulness through his people. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. They had already given to him before and they felt compelled by the Lord to give to him again. And it says that their, their care for him had flourished again. They gave to him because they cared about him relationships are so important. Sometimes we're so busy that we don't minister to one another, that we don't have real relationships. We were at a Mexican restaurant last night, and I was sitting there talking to my buddy Jared, and as while we were sitting there, I was just kind of looking around the room because it's Azalea Festival. We were in Fredericktown. There was two individuals sitting there, a husband and a wife, presumably, and they were sitting at the table enjoying their Mexican meal, And they had great food in front of them. And both of them, because they have cell phones, were sitting there with their cell phones in their face. And, of course, I was nosy. I was like, I wonder what she's looking at. And she was perusing through Facebook. It wasn't even anything meaningful. She was just looking at pictures of what other people were doing during the day. Now, guilty, by the way. This is something that I've been guilty of. But what I I noticed and I thought about and was reminded of is that many times, because we're being social on social media, We're not actually being social in real life. And many times we're looking through people's pictures that we actually don't even ever see. So we miss out on life under the the presumption that we're living by looking at life. And so we miss out on relationships by doing that. So if there's anything I would encourage you is intertwine your lives with other people in real life. It doesn't matter if you like their status, although they might be encouraged by that. It doesn't matter if you comment on their page. They might be encouraged by that, but there's nothing that can replace life-on-life relationship. People know things about me from Facebook, but it's really only the things I want them to know about me. I didn't post about the car debacle. You know, I didn't post about my failures. I only post everything that's good. And so everybody probably thinks that I've got this life that's all together. But if they spent a little bit of time with me throughout the week, what they find out is I'm human like everybody else. You know, one of the ways I want to be a witness is by being real with people. Yesterday I called my dad, and I've, heard, I've been with him when he's been in those situations where the car's broke, his wife needs it, the, Judah at the same time had bumped his head, and I wanted to be honest with my dad and say, I'm really frustrated right now. And you know what? This stuff's all going on, and I kind of, you know, spiritually kind of threw up on him a little bit. You know, but I, I wasn't trying to burden him, but I felt like I needed to be real. And sometimes we could need some realness because then when other people are struggling through situations like I had yesterday, we can be reminded, I'm not the only one that has stuff going on. I'm not the only one that has things blow up on a Saturday, you know. So Paul is encouraged by Epaphroditus, not only because he comes, but because Epaphroditus gives him a, a, he tells him, hey, this is how the Philippian church is doing. He tells him good stuff. He tells him bad stuff. And I tell you what, sometimes when people tell me bad stuff that's going on, I just want to do what Lucy does when Judah's crying. I don't want to hear it. But we're trying to teach Lucy when bad things are going on, when Judah's upset, don't cover your ears, try to help him. Be empathetic. Be there for him. So sometimes people are going on and on and on, and all they ever do is complain. And sometimes we shut our ears to them. Sometimes we just need to go, really, is that how bad it's going? Let's pray. Can I pray with you? 
you sound like you could use the Lord's encouragement because I got nothing to offer, you know, but you can pray with them and bring the Lord into the situation. But he says, surely you did care in the past, but you lacked opportunity since then. Paul didn't look at his current circumstances in jail as a bummer. I'm sure he did in some ways, but he actually saw it as an opportunity for the Philippians to be blessed. Jesus himself, quoted by Paul in the book of Acts, said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul got to receive. What we're going to find out is he wasn't as excited about getting to receive as he was that the Philippians got an opportunity to give. He says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that in whatever state that I'm in to be content. Paul wasn't excited because he he had a need. He actually didn't see himself as having a need. He, he found sufficiency. He found that the Lord was all that he need. He says, verse 12, I know how to be abased, meaning to be humbled, and I know how to abound, meaning to overflow with God's goodness. He says, but everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full, to be satisfied, and to be hungry, to be famished. He says, both to abound and to suffer need. How many of you in here like to be needy or to have needs that you can't meet? I know I don't. I, I, I like to be full, satisfied, and I like to have everything I need. And so sometimes we struggle with that, and Paul, I think, struggled with that. I like how it says here, very honestly, that he learned in whatever state he was in to be content. I don't think Paul was on the road to Damascus and God blinded him and showed him that he was persecuting the church and then Paul gets saved and then he was like, I'm content now. <laughs> I'm encouraged by that because I'm not content most of the time. Paul had learned through going through trials and trusting Jesus in them, he learned how to be content. He wasn't this super saint that just got it immediately. He had to walk with the Lord and learn the idea that word there means to learn through experience. You can't learn through experience unless you ever walk through the wilderness with Jesus. He says this in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I read this and I've seen this on bracelets uh, that say Philippians 4.13. And I'm encouraged by that because I see Scripture everywhere I go. But we need to deal with our wrong conception about what Paul was saying in that verse. Many times we see, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we say, wow, I can do literally anything that I want to do because Christ's going to strengthen me in it. But what did Paul just say? He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, meaning that I can be full and I can be famished. I can be with everything that I need and satisfied, and I can be without things that I think that I need. He doesn't mean that, okay, Christ is going to give me strength, so I'm always going to have everything I need. My life is just going to be in an overflowing lifestyle. I'm hashtag blessed. He's not saying that. He's saying that even with Christ strengthening me, I can be poor. I can suffer need. I can be persecuted. I can be laughed at. I can be made fun of by my friends, who are those who I think that are my friends. I can be with everything that I need, or I can have everything break down, and I can do that even with Christ strengthening me. 
Man, that is a message that this life, this world needs to hear because we are not content. Contentment is something that needs to be learned just like discontentment is learned and taught. Watch TV commercials for five minutes and you'll find that every hour there is a company that has an advertisement group. Their main purpose is to make you feel like you need what they have. They stay up nights thinking about it. How can I make someone feel like they have to have this car they can't afford? How can I encourage them to be discontent with their spouse so they'll go on this dating website? How can I discourage them from being content with their, their, their spouse so that they'll go on our website and look at all kinds of stuff? How can I make them discontent with their house so they'll want to buy a different one? How can I make them discontent with their vehicle so they'll buy a new one even though their old one's not even old yet? How can I do that? That's what the world's doing. They, the world wants us to be discontent so we'll spend our whole life spinning our wheels striving to obtain something that we can't even keep. 1 Timothy 6, it says this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, a young man, and I want to encourage you guys that a young man in their day was like 40. So, I like that. Verse 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain meaning without a doubt, that we can carry nothing out. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. And having food and clothing, Paul says, with these we shall be content. What does that word content mean? We'll get to that. Verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. He doesn't say those who are rich. He says those who are reaching out and trying to be rich. If that's your goal, then you, fall, you can fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's like jumping into the ocean without anything to help you float. You're trying to obtain something, and by doing it, you're putting yourself in danger. He says, with these things we shall be content. Food and clothing. He doesn't even say a house. He says food, what we need to sustain our life, and clothing, our covering. We shall be content with these things. For the love of money, verse 10, is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice he doesn't say money is evil. He says the love of money, the desire for money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. It's called greed. And so he says, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. The love of things other than Jesus can stray you from the faith in Jesus. Because they get in the way. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and anything else. Because if you try to serve two masters, eventually their territory crosses. And their desires and their goals for us get in the way. So we have to serve God with a single focus of pleasing Him. He says, For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and by doing so they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They injure themselves by their lust. And so back in, first, back in Philippians 4, he says, I have learned to be content. And that word content means this. Self-contained. 
To be content means to, like contents in a, in a container. Content means to be happy with where you are. Does not mean to be complacent. Complacent is like apathy. It's like, eh, I don't really care if I have anything. That's not the idea. The idea is to be content. Hey, I'm, I'm good where I'm at right now. But Paul's not saying this to say that he is content with himself. He, what he's saying is, I am self-sufficient, meaning I'm self-content, in Christ's sufficiency for me. I am sufficient in that I am sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. He's all that I need. Jesus is everything that we need. Through Christ, he says in verse 13, through Christ, meaning that he is our source of strength. Imagine like a a lamp that you want to plug in. You have to have power from somewhere. We've had the power come off a couple times this week, right? And if you plug yourself into a source that can be drained or or can be shut off, then that means that you're not always going to be on. But if we're plugged in Christ, if we're through Christ finding our strength, I can do all things, meaning that I can be content while rich or poor, while satisfied or while suffering need. Paul was satisfied. He was content with Christ. Christ was all that he needed no matter what. His sufficiency was found in his relationship with Jesus. The one thing that can't be taken away. Romans chapter 5. Turn with me if you got your Bible open. Romans chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, meaning we've been made just as if we'd never sinned by Jesus, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory, meaning that we abound, we do well, we shine bright in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, or the ability to keep pressing on, produces character. And character produces hope. And our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope is that God is in us and He helps us to shine bright no matter what's going on. And then turn to Romans chapter 8 on the next page or two in verse 31. And Paul writes this to the Romans. Romans 8 and verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave us his only begotten son so that we could be made right with him by death on the cross, then why wouldn't he give us freely all things that we need? Who shall bring a charge against God's people? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns us? It's Christ who died, and furthermore, he's also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who at this very moment is making intercession for us? He's praying for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And then he gives some things that we might think could separate us from the love of Christ. He says, shall tribulation? What about distress? What about persecution? What about famine where we don't have any food or nakedness or peril or even death by the sword? Can, that se- can these things separate us from God? And the answer is no. Verse 37, he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. Conquerors go out to battle and they fight and they don't know who's going to win. We're more than that. You know why? Because the battle was already won. We go out to battle knowing who's going to win. How cool is that? We get to fight day in and day out and know how the battle's going to end. Christ wins. We're on the winning team. We battle from a place of already victory. Now, practically, it doesn't feel like that, does it? It feels like we're getting defeated. It feels like stress comes in, like we get pressed in on from every side. But the reality is Christ already won. So in the middle of the battle, we can sit there feeling like everything's coming at us, knowing full and well, not because it feels like it, but because God words, God's word said so, that God is with us, that he is in us, and that he will claim victory over our enemies. Even if they kill us. If we're in one of those countries where persecutions happen, you know why they die with confidence? Because number one, there are nobody willing to die for their faith when they don't truly believe. There's no mediocre, carnal Christians in foreign countries where it might cause you death. Because at that point you go, am I willing to die for this? Either yes or no. And if you're not, you get off the fence. You're you're done. But if you believe, you'll be willing to die for it because you know, even if someone kills you, you will be with the Lord in glory. And people will see that, man, there's people don't die for things they don't believe in. That's why when people start to question the, the, the apostles and the doctrine that they wrote, they're like, I, I think it was a hallucination. I don't know if Jesus really rose from the dead. I think they were trying to just keep the thing going. Well, if they were just trying to keep the thing going, they died for the cause. They were crazy. Many of them crucified just like Jesus was for this very faith that we believe in. And so it is, if it's worth dying for, I believe that it's worth living for, to follow Jesus. So, Jesus can't be taken from us. And I think that's an encouraging promise. So, verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, <clears throat> you guys have done well that you shared in my distress. You were with me in the hard times. Now, you Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you guys did. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but Paul says, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. When we offer up a little extra to someone, when we provide for somebody when they, don't, when they have a need and they don't have what they need, what we're doing is we're taking what God gave to us and we're basically sorting out the, the extra that we have. And because of that, there's fruit There's fruit that abounds to our account. We are accounted that to our account when we go to heaven. We're laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Indeed, verse 18, I have all and I abound. In other words, I have everything I need. And then he says, I am full. I'm satisfied 
having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And then he tells them this about what they've given him. He says, It's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. He says, You've given to me, but by giving to me, you're giving to the Lord. In the Old Testament, they would take the first fruits of their fields, they would take the first fruits of their increase and whatever they had, they would take it up to the temple, and a portion would go to be sacrificed to the Lord, and they would burn it, and the aroma would go up to the Lord. You would see it for miles from the Temple Mount. You'd see the smoke arising up to the the Lord, and the idea was that he would smell it like we would smell barbecue. Somebody's barbecuing down the street from you, you smell it, you're like, man, I think we need a barbecue, or become friends with them because they cook good barbecue. You know, you smell the, the food, and the Lord, he takes the best portion, the fatty portion, when it burns, there's this sizzle and there's this those aroma and our prayers and the way we serve the Lord goes up to the Lord as an offering to Him. Now, we're going to bless each other. We're going to bless people that we don't know that we want to show the love of Christ to, but it's also an aroma to the Lord. If you're doing it to be recognized by people, they're not going to thank you. As a matter of fact, they're going to take what you gave them. They're going to use it in a way you don't want them to. But if you do it unto the Lord... And you know that he's pleased with it. No matter what they, how they use it, you're not going to care because you're like, I did that for the Lord. I don't care if anybody notices. And that's when the Lord is pleased with it. He says it's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, and it's well-pleasing to God. Verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need. You've met my one need, but recognize that my God, the one whom you serve, is going to supply all your need. If you gave out of your lack and you have nothing now because you gave sacrificially until it hurt, I am confident that God's going to supply your need just like he did mine, is what he's saying. According to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And then he says, verse 20, it's like a word of worship. He says, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are at Caesar's household. So they're supporting Paul while he's in prison. And many people will go, why would you support a missionary who's in prison? Well, in their prisons, first of all, they didn't have food. They didn't have three hots and a cot. They had nothing. They were chained to a wall. And the only prisoners that stayed alive were the ones that had friends on the outside that cared enough to meet their practical needs to get him clothing, to get him food. But also, Paul was still being a witness in prison. There were guards chained to him. And you know Paul. He was a hard-pressing guy. I hope you know him. If you read his epistles, he wasn't just sitting there chained to him, going, I can't say anything. He was sharing his faith. If you were a prison guard chained to Paul, you were going to hear about Jesus. You were going to be miserable if you were in sin. You were going to be talking to him, and he was going to all the time just be saying, hey, do you know Jesus? And then some of them, it seems, got saved. So you wonder if they were like, hey, I know you don't want to sit with him, but I'd like to sit with him. That guy knows some Bible. He's going to teach me something about Jesus I didn't know. I'll trade shifts with you, you know. And so Paul, there he was being a witness, and they were providing for it. All the saints greet you, he says, especially those who are of Caesar's household. His servants knew Jesus because of Paul. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So I just want to talk for just a couple of minutes about God's provision. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. 
Exodus 16. Everyone remembers the crossing the Red Sea. Everyone remembers the deliverance from Egypt. But do you remember that God provided bread for his people while they were in the desert after having left Egypt? They had nothing. And so God told Moses, he says, I'm going to provide bread from heaven. So in Exodus chapter 16, in verse 4, he says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God provided for them bread, sustenance, food, and clothing. At the end of the account, after they were in the wilderness for 40 years, none of their clothes wore out for 40 years while wandering in the desert. God's provision of food and clothing. So then in verse 15, if you move ahead a little bit, he says, So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, this is after God rained it down from heaven in the dew of the morning, they saw what had fallen, they looked at it, and they said, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Now God had told Moses, I'm going to provide bread for all the people, all of them. I'm going to rain it from heaven. It's bread from heaven. You know what they called it? What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? And so they looked at it. They had no idea what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person. According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the Lord and the children of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. I misunderstood this until just the other night. I was thinking that they were all gathering, some of them more than they needed, and then eating it all. And some of them, not enough. And then they were eating, and they were, didn't have enough, but they were satisfied. That's not what was happening. Everyone would go out and gather. Just like we go to our jobs, we all go and we gather so we can support our households. But when they went out to gather, they would gather what they could. Now, think about it. We just moved a couple weeks ago. Some people carried more than others. Some people were able to carry the big bulky stuff, and some people grabbed a plant or some decorations or, you know, whatever. But everyone gathers according to their ability, right? Some of us have jobs where we can gather more than others. Some have jobs where they can't gather enough. But what the Lord does in His economy is He uses everyone according to their ability. And as they bring it all in to the place where they'd meet it out and measure it, everyone gets an omer, no matter how much you gather or how little you gathered. So I love this because even in the Old Testament, it says this, He who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Even though he was only able to gather a little bit, he still had enough. He was satisfied. So, turn with me to the next one in Mark chapter 6. God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and he will be in the future. Mark chapter 6 now, you remember the story. Jesus had been teaching. He had this big crowd gathered around him. And even when he tried to take his disciples to get some rest, they would crowd around him. They'd, they'd find out where he was, and they would all go there. They would avoid eating. They wouldn't have any food with them. They wouldn't have any place to stay. All they knew is they wanted to be around Jesus, this miracle man. 
So as they find Jesus, they're with him. They're out in the wilderness somewhere, and there's much of it in Israel after having gone there. It's not all cities. It's not all roads that are close to one another. There's lots of desert. And they were out in the desert, and Jesus was teaching them, and it got late. And the disciples said, hey, all these people need to eat, uh, so why don't we send them away to go get something? And Jesus said, you feed them. And they're like, well, we don't have anything to eat either. Like, what are we going to do? He said, well, what do you have? And so they started talking to the crowd, and they found this little boy that his, his mom had packed him a sack lunch, and he had a couple of loaves and some fish. Obviously not enough food to feed 5,000 people and their families. But Jesus said, give me what you have. And so Jesus took what they had, he broke it, he gave thanks for it, he filled up 12 baskets for the disciples, and they all went out and they passed it out to the crowd. And what I want you to read is in Mark chapter 6, verse 40. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed it, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. What does verse 42 say? They all ate, and they all were filled. The word again, being satisfied. They were content. They were glutted. They were overfilled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. So two stories, same God. In Exodus, God provided them bread. To those who could gather a little, they did. To those who could gather much, but everyone was satisfied. In the New Testament, Jesus shows up. They're trying to figure out who he is, and he provides bread from heaven. They had bread to offer, but he had much. And so he provided, he multiplied it, he gave thanks for it, and he provided but in both cases, who was the one that supplied the need? First Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want, says this. Paul praying, he says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you were enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding, the word means overflowing, through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. For your liberal sharing with them and with all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So in short, what he's saying is everyone who has a need, it has already been supplied. It's just a question of whether or not we're willing to take what God has given us and put it where he wants it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and many times he sells a couple and provides for someone else's need that doesn't own the cows. And in the kingdom of God, that's how God supplies. He is the one who supplies everything that we have. So sometimes he calls us to give, and sometimes he calls us to receive. And there is a blessing in both. When you know that God is the one that provides for you, whether it's through your job, which is very practical, or whether it's through someone else giving to you, it produces joy in your life. 
And when you know that God has provided for you more than you have, and you see someone with a need, and you're able to be that supply as the Lord pours through you, there's joy to be had in that. And so whoever it is that supplies or gives or receives, God is the one who supplies all, and he is in all. He's the supplier. And so this morning, as we look at the end of the book of Philippians, let me ask you, are you content? Are you content? And let me ask you this, are you content with Jesus? If everything in your life was taken away, would you still be content with Jesus alone? If he's all you ever had, would you be content with him? Because that's the goal. Paul was able to be used in a miraculous way and to share the gospel in all these places because he was willing to be poor for Jesus and he was willing to be rich for Jesus, but he recognized that it was all Jesus. So are you content in Jesus? And if you're not, what are you content in and how does that need to change? So this morning we're going to take communion and I want you to examine